0: I wasn't really paying attention to the calendar. In one year, I, I did, a, I did a, like a special message for Mother's Day, and, um, and I didn't do a special message for Father's Day. and So I got like, all these scathing emails like, oh, dads don't matter as much as moms, like why would you do, do a Mother's Day message, and not a Father's Day message? So the next year, I did a Father's Day message, and I didn't do a Mother's Day message, and I got lots of mean emails, and so I just said, I reject all mothers and fathers. Moving forward, <laughs> no, I, what I decided is like, I want to honor moms uh, and I want to just take a moment. I, I, I think that it's a, it's a beautiful thing for us to be able to celebrate um, something that I think actually society is pushing more and more against, which is, is the beauty uh, of of the marriage bond between a man and a woman, the beauty of parenting, of being a mama, and the uniqueness of that. In fact, I just read this article today and I found myself so frustrated um, because it speaks to uh, a narrative that is increasing in our society uh, that undermines things that have always historically been viewed as something worth celebrating, something that is beautiful, something that is a gift and a mystery. Uh, And it it, it was an article written by this woman that clearly had an ax to grind and it was called The Myth of the Maternal Instinct. The Myth of the Maternal Instinct. And that the maternal instinct is something just created by Uh, Christian men of course um, that's meant to hold women down and oppress them and there's very little scientific evidence that that maternal instinct is a real thing and I'm like what are you talking about like not even Darwin ever said anything that dumb why why do we think that uh, and, And no no there was no evidence the person wasn't a scientist they were a journalist and what they were denying is actually take God out of the equation Uh, what are the one kind of bear that you don't want to come into contact with? A mother bear. The father's not gonna bother with you. Like, they're not angry. They're not busy protecting their little ones. It's called the mama bear. Darcy will refer to herself, if someone critiques me, even if she's like the biggest critic of me in that area, if you critique critique me in the same area that she's gonna critique, she calls it her, her mama bear, protection device is going to come out. There is a maternal instinct that is absolutely a beautiful gift and something to be celebrated, but in an attempt to redefine and continue to dismantle our ideas of what a family is. It's not that we like men don't have a nurturing side to them. That's not what the point is. The point is, is that there is a unique relationship between a mother and a child. And, and here's the thing I want to just state, um, Darcy uh, often accuses me of just making stuff up uh, in conversation. Uh, and, uh, and I try not to ever do that to you as a preacher, but it's true that, you know, I, I generally will be very confident in certain things that I just know statistically it's going to be probably accurate. So I just said to her the other day, I said, Mother's Day is definitely, uh, it it has this origin as a Christian holiday. And she goes, it's not a Christian holiday. And I'm like, no, I I think you're, I think you're, I think you're wrong she like she was you totally are making that up so i look it up sure enough it has its origin as a christian holiday but what i have to confess darcy is i didn't know it when i looked it up but here's the thing everything in western civilization owes its existence to the church, so it's almost always a right answer. Like, if you look back far enough, you're like, yes, it probably came to you from the church. Uh, but, it, but it was two women, it, actually, for real, in like 1902, uh, Mother's Day was uh, first kind of presented as actually two, two Christian Methodist women that were activists um, that, on the East Coast in Boston, and the mother wanted to, uh, she had lost her mom, and she wanted to, uh, she just felt like this is something that's worth honoring and I, I just get so saddened. I'm like, I think, what a beautiful thing. I do think that this is something worth honoring. And, and I also want to acknowledge that I know that for some Mother's Day is complicated. I know that some of you maybe had a challenging mother or you've lost a mother, uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate motherhood and the gift it is. And I also want to say this. I also know that it can be difficult for some, there might be someone sitting in this room that is incapable of having a child, a woman that couldn't actually have a mother. And I want to say that there has also historically been numerous women, historically, that have played that role of spiritual mother without having actual biological kids. So I think motherhood is more transcendent than just one who's had a kid. I think that it's a beautiful gift that is part of what it means to image God. And so I want to celebrate you, mamas, and then I also want to admit that Mother's Day for you moms, also lands on the most terrifying passage in the Bible that I have to teach today in Matthew 7. And I promise you, I was not attempting to be a big downer on Mother's Day. Because I just want you to know, I actually got um, blacklisted from a church in 2004 when I was a full-time musician um, for playing at, at a mega church of 20,000 people. In Albuquerque, I was the special music for Mother's Day service, and they're like, "It's Mother's Day, you know. We want to keep it light and happy, and f- uplifting." And I, being like, at that time, I thought I was Keith Green, and I started just like hammering on. The only book I see up here is the Purpose Driven Life, and that's not the Bible. And I, and then they're like, "You're never welcome back. You were you beat that you beat the sheep." Um, and I'm like, "I just I thought I was being." you know, all in for Jesus, but I I guess it wasn't very pleasant. So I want to just, you know, I'm very nervous about that now. So I decided I'm not going to give this message. We're just going to pray and go back to worship. (laughs) All right. We are looking actually at Matthew chapter 7 and we are moving into the close of the Sermon on the Mount and this has been an incredible study and one of the things that I've been trying to argue from the beginning is that the Sermon on the Mount is often the most misunderstood and misapplied teaching of Jesus, Um, uh, probably one of the most misapplied teachings in Scripture um, in the church and I think it has led, when it's not understood correctly, has led to unbelievable legalism. Um, and what I mean by legalism is it has led to, because um, it deals so explicitly with the ethics of the kingdom, um, it is easy to, to read through the Sermon on the Mount and think like, I've got to do better. I can't, I've got to be careful how I look at women. I have to be careful not to get mad because I might, might kill someone unintentionally. I've, I've got to be be careful of, you know, what if I'm, what if I'm doing... Uh, you know, acts of righteousness with the wrong, with the wrong heart and the wrong focus. And you just can get obsessed with, I'm, you know, I'm not doing well. I'm not living up to the standard that God has called me to live. I, I'm not, I'm not proving my worth. And so I think that the Sermon on the Mount, people try harder and harder. I'm gonna do this thing. I'm never gonna struggle with lust again. I'm never gonna get angry again. And that's not the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is setting forth an immovable ideal an immovable ethic. It's an ethic that that is actually in line with the very heart and nature of God. And that ethic is is an unobtainable reality for us who live in a fallen world and fallen bodies with fallen minds. And therefore, when Jesus says, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, it inevitably leads us to this, that's actually impossible because who is perfect? And that is the point it's meant to drive us back to a position of dependence upon Jesus who is the one who has come down to us, who has lived the life that we couldn't live. He establishes an ethic that only he can keep and he puts forth that ethic. This is the ethic of my kingdom on which I am king. Now cast yourself in dependence upon me because you will see very quickly if you think that the Christian life is about you proving to God your, your worthiness you are going to fail miserably and miss the whole point of the sermon. And nowhere is that felt more fully than in the, in the final warnings. And I believe Jesus is hammering home the danger of, of legalism and the, and the false confidence that people can have in their salvation when it's based upon what they do rather than what Christ has done for them. And this is why this is a heavy text. And what we're going to look at is two, two worlds of falsehood. First, false prophets. Uh, and then we're going to look at false disciples. And I would argue that false prophets often produce false disciples. Um, and false prophets is where we, we must begin. And this is an important text. And, and I think it's one that is, often gets applied inappropriately. And we can look at that slide, Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Um, false prophets and diseased trees. And Jesus says this, he says, beware of false prophets. Remember, this is coming on the heels of, he just got done saying, there are two paths. There's a broad path that that leads to destruction and many enter in by it. And there's a narrow path, uh, a narrow gate and a difficult path. Uh, and there are few who find it. And I, what I tried to argue last week is it's not about who's in and who's out. That's not, the, that's not the primary thrust of what Jesus is trying to say. What he's saying is that to be a disciple is to be one who abides in Christ. And Christ is the gate and he is the path. Um, and the natural tendency of the human heart is to, is to actually not enter through a dependence upon Jesus, but we enter into that broad path into, into the wide gate and the broad path, the path of least resistance, but it has diminishing returns. And it's, I believe that its parallel is actually found in the Old Testament. That it's what I call the, the broad path of destruction is not the path to hell as much as it is the path, the, the reality of the possibility for wilderness wandering as Christians. In other words, you got just enough faith to get out of slavery, out of Egypt, but not enough faith to move into the promised land. The wilderness was never where God intended the children of Israel to stay. The wilderness was a place they were to pass through to move into the place where actually all the real battles took place. It was the place where they were to enter into real communion with God. But instead, they, they in, their, in their rebellion, their refusal to allow the lordship of Yahweh over their lives, instead they rebelled and they complained. And what they found is that the, the wilderness became the place where they perished. It doesn't mean they were unsaved, it just means that God said, listen, you, you've you're not going back to slavery I've already he redeemed you from slavery you're mine but but I've given you enough freedom now to either be miserable in that in that position as my children you can enter into the promised land or you can just continually wish you were back in that old life but now you're more miserable than the person that you were when you were a slave because you've you, you don't realize that all that is necessary for living the fullest life possible is available i am actually with you god never stopped being with the children of israel in their rebellion he he was with them in the pillar of flame at night and the cloud during the day his presence was was manifest and yet the children of israel still didn't understand that god was trying to bring them into into a place where they could be in intimate union with him and become conduits of grace to the world but they rebelled against that. In fact, they turned like we do, just, just like we do as Christians, they turned from the creator and the law giver to the law itself and they replaced the relationship with, a, with, with ritual and they lost God in doing so. And I think that this is why we need to understand that as we move into this next deck because this is the reality that, that often leads us, uh, this, is, this is often where... I think uh, people are led astray more fully is it often begins with leaders. And Jesus says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. What Jesus is not saying is that it's not possible for a tree that has good fruit to not have a bad apple on it what he's talking about is that a diseased tree is incapable of producing anything good and the use of hyperbolic language the purpose isn't like an accurate depiction of fruit trees the, pur- the, the purpose is here's the reality false teachers come in they're hard to recognize because they they sound like the real thing they act like the real thing, uh, but the evidence that they're not the real thing is that their teachings do not lead to the liberation of the believer. They actually lead to a sickness and an enslavement because they're not grounded in the truth of the gospel. And, and he goes on to say, "Can a cheese bear, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You know what is fascinating to me is this passage is often utilized to just be applied to Christians carte blanche and that is not the purpose of this text. In fact, I would argue it's very difficult to determine where someone is at with God. As a pastor, I am never comfortable saying who is saved and who is not saved. That's an insane thing to actually pretend to know. My dad was so sick when he came to faith, there was no fruit to be produced in his life other than his simple trust in Jesus. So the purpose here is that Jesus is giving us an example. He said, teachers. We will know these teachers by their fruit. And it's also difficult. What does he mean by fruit? And he said, and, and I think the fruit is like, what is the outcome of that which is being taught? How do we test whether or not this is a thing of God versus this is a thing of man? And, and I think the first thing that he points out is where the falsehood is felt is first of all the falsehood is felt um, in the clothes that they wear uh, and, and what is meant by this is that, 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 that it's very difficult to determine a false teacher because the best false teachers um, are often cloaked in enough truth that deception uh, is the natural outcome. Most people, and I'm not saying this to offend you, I promise you, but most people are hardwired to follow. Not many people are hardwired to pioneer and lead. Um, and nobody is hardwired to be famous. I'm totally convinced of that. And in a, in a celebrity culture where, where churches have emulated the world, it's not surprising that celebrity pastors continue to fall one after another because of duplicitous living. False teachers um, are, are people that have, I, I think the, 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 the best false teachers are ones who are misusing their charisma for the, the purpose of self-promotion. And I would say one of the ways that you can tell a false teacher, and especially in the church, and here's the terrifying thing. We think of false teachers, we're like Jim Jones, false teacher. Yeah, well that's an easy target, you know. But what about false teaching amongst teachers who actually really believe they really actually they love jesus but they have a they have a a wrong grid and they are not demonstrating the gospel and they're they're still allowing they're still allowing the flesh to be the driving force they're relying so heavily upon their own natural gifting that they that they're that they've lost this the sight of what it means to be uh, spirit-led and spirit-filled. So how often do we see amongst what are considered great Bible teachers a spirit of pride? And how often does that pride tend to be marked by illegalism? I figured out the way and in an unwillingness to ever admit any wrongdoing. And so what I think is that the most terrifying kind of false teaching that I, that I can think of is actually what I would consider to be legitimate Bible-believing evangelical churches who hold tenaciously to to creedal Christianity, but they don't understand the gospel because they're such a product of society that their creedal Christianity is converted into what I call more like therapeutic moralism. And the therapeutic moralism is driven by kind of the, the, our love as a society of self-help. The self-help industry is a $4.5 billion industry. It's a massive industry, and the church is not immune to it. And in what I believe is come is is becoming increasingly, um, uh, increasingly common in the church is there is an abandonment of the gospel um, under the guise of things like spiritual formation. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna focus all of our attention on how do we become the best possible Christian. But Christianity has never been built upon, and it is not the, che- the, the preacher's responsibility to give you a path to personal fulfillment. The responsibility of the preacher is that we are called to be heralds of a message that we are not allowed to mess with. And the goal of the, of, the, of the gospel is not to give you a list of things to do to prove your worth to God, but it is to remind you on a weekly basis that God has accepted you in Jesus. And will you say yes to that yes? And do you know the Jesus in whom you've said yes to? I don't think prescriptive preaching is what is needed in the church. What I think is needed is more cross-centered preaching that is introducing people to a Jesus that the preacher believes is present. But I think instead what we've, we've replaced gospel preaching with is often like five ways to have a better marriage, ten ways to be a better mother. It's all these things that are good things but they're good things that are displacing um, or moving to the side the main thing. Where all of a sudden the Christian life is defined by the things that you do and you don't do rather than who you know. <laughs> a God who has stepped in. Uh, and so, what's the fruit of self-help? Well, the fruit of self-help is is exhaustion. The fruit of self-help is I'm never actually good enough, and I just got to try harder, and I need to do more. And, I, and, and now, all of a sudden, you have a, you have a whole world of service understood in this way. I serve to be loved rather than I am serving King Jesus and his people because I am loved and nothing can move that love. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. Now here's the terrifying thing about, about uh, counterfeit teachers is that they, they, the counterfeit have to have certain marks of the genuine article. You know, did you know this? First of all, nobody, nobody that's in a cult thinks of themselves in a cult. I hope you know that. Um, and most Christians today, uh, it's not surprising to me that there is an there is a, a increasing inability to determine what is true, what is gospel-centric and what is not, because in an age of relativism, truth is defined by the individual subjective experience. And the more that we live by, by a relative uh, vision of truth, that truth is not something solid, but it's like a pudding, that's, you know, that you eat or something, rather than a, an immovable wall or an immovable foundation that doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. Well, if we live in, a, in an age of relativism, it's not surprising in an increasingly illiterate society. The average American reads at a third grade level. We take in more information through our social media and through, and through the voices of our current age. You know, the, I always joke, like, and it's actually not a joke, that the modern priests and priestesses of, of this age in which we live are the, are the influencers in our social media. It's our inner... T- We're like, we listen to celebrities who don't know anything any more than you. It, it, an actor is not, you know, I always thought it was funny. Remember when there was, like, there was all this, like, stress in the Middle East, and Sean Penn decided he was going to go to the Middle East and figure out what was happening, and then report back to us. I'm like, this is the insanity of the age in which we. I mean, you know, it's not that shocking. I mean, we, you know, we knew it was coming the moment we had a we had a reality television star become president of our country. It's not shocking that our, our country is built. The fact that our actual sitting presidents will be on things like Saturday Night Live uh, t- tells us that our, the, the merging of illusion and, and entertainment and politics are so in- intertwined now that it's difficult to, to even separate illusion from truth. And, and then you combine that with a laziness in our current culture that is driven by distraction and a desire for instantaneous satisfaction. It's like the Bible Project is meant to help you read your Bible more. I wonder how many people use the Bible Project as a replacement of the Bible. I promise you that was never Tim's intent. It was meant to inspire you to be more in the word, but instead we will rely upon, upon, I was telling my preaching cohort, like. Don't use commentaries to write sermons. Read your Bible over and over again and build your theological grid so that you know how to interpret Scripture appropriately. But don't just rely on the, on the opinions and the work of another. Do the work. It's the, it, it's the narrow path. It's the difficult way. And it doesn't come instantaneously. It takes time. To know the Scripture inside and out, to know the voice of our King, we have to learn how to attune our voice, our ears to His voice. And to know a false teacher from a true one, it's very difficult when it's subtle and all of the language that is utilized sounds Christian. But what do they mean by those words? Do you know that the greatest amount of converts to Mormonism actually comes from uh, evangelical Christians? Did you know that that was actually where most of their converts come from? Why? Because evangelicals already have a fundamental belief in God. Mormons utilize all the language the same. They use words like elder. They talk about Jesus. But do you know that they're not actually talking about the same Jesus as historical Christianity? Some of you might even be sitting here and actually didn't know that Mormonism is traditionally viewed as a cult. That it's, an a cult is defined by an organization by which there is a hierarchy that holds information, the secret kind of knowledge that only the elite have. And this is why it's possible to have a cultish Christian church, not just a full-blown cult, when there is a refusal to be servants where the leadership are holding secrecy and holding information. And I think this often is the case within evangelical um, celebrity features is the idea that the, the the preacher becomes the guru who's arrived and he holds the secret keys um, to, to a, more, a more fulfilled life. That is the essence of Gnostic spirituality or mysticism even. And so false teachers can be very difficult. I thought it was amazing that, and, and even I for like a split second got sucked in, how quickly the, the church embraced uh, things like Enneagram. As like some sort of like secret knowledge to completely read people. And I, I've made tons of jokes about it, but all joking aside, when you actually learn about the history of where that came from, it literally has no place in the pulpit ever, ever. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Christianity. It has far more to do with, with, with a new age sort of Gnostic, Gnostic kind of spirituality that's driven by this desire that, that to know thyself and to know others, and then create excuses for bad behavior. That's what I feel like it's good for. Uh, And I'll read like Meyer, like Meyer Briggs, DISC test, you never saw a book come out called Sacred Meyer Briggs or Sacred Disc. Uh, But there are a lot of Enneagram, it's like, like I said, it's like like Christians finally found their way to dabble in the occult and not feel bad about it. Um, And I think that here's the problem, is that we don't have enough discernment to even ask the question, is this actually good? Is this right? And it's really hard to discern that if your teachers that you respect and follow are promoting it and say, this is the good thing. This is the right thing. This is what we need to do. If we want to be satisfied and happy in our, in our age, then we need to be more about this. We need to do more of this. Why do you think that historically every denomination, Lutheranism, the Lutheran faith, Presbyterian faith, Methodist church. Episcopalian, all the mainline denominations have actually abandoned historical Christianity to the point where there's so many schisms within. This is why Catholics and Orthodox people make fun of Protestants, because the moment we refuse to see the authority sits with the church is the moment we said, well, the authority sits with the Bible, but we have to agree on whose interpretation, which has allowed us for far more splits. But one of the things I think so fascinating is that John Wesley was hardly liberal. Show me a Methodist Church today that isn't. Look at United Methodist Church today that they're far more like a new age. All paths lead to God. There there is no distinctive, there is no no claiming historical, creedal Christianity. It's a complete… because that is the nature of the human heart is that it doesn't take long for us to lose sight. Just like, the, that's why we're no different than the children of Israel. It doesn't take long to drift. It doesn't take any effort to drift. Drifting is the natural outcome of, of trusting, uh, trusting blindly without ever asking the question, Lord, give me discernment. Do you ever ask a question like, have I tested what Josh has said? Have I asked the question, does, can, you, can it be backed up? Or am I so compelling that you just trust me to always tell you the truth? I love that my wife's like, I know you just made that up. That's like knowing someone, she's testing the spirits and she knows there are some things that are just not trustworthy. Um, And I I think that the, you know, all joking aside, but the idea of like, that's why we need one another is to actually hold each other accountable. It's why the elders, one of their primary responsibilities is to hold tenaciously to, hey, that, if that message doesn't honor Jesus or it's outside of biblical, like that is not pointing people to Christ. That's not pointing people to a de- deeper understanding of the gospel. That's a problem. Um, and, but legalism is hard, especially when it's wrapped in Christian language and you're calling people to real activity. If they're doing things, then it must be right, right? But that's not how it works. And we know that's not how it works. The falsehood is not only in uh, in in false clothing the use of legitimate language the it's it's, it's garbed in everything that feels right but it really comes down to uh, I, I think of this in second timothy 4 3 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers i kind of feel like one of the prom one of the problem movements within the church today is an attempt to be as as non-offensive as possible we want to be as non-offensive as possible and what that means is that if we could just create a christianity that brings about neutrality like if we could just have a christianity that where nobody's you know if we just you know stuck to ourselves and it's like is if 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 the goal of the christian life is to make sure that nobody notices that we're here (laughs) that's i feel like that's when Dora Pope first began, that was my biggest critique of like young Christians. I'm like, I just found out my coworker of three years is a Christian and we worked together for three years. Isn't that awesome? I'm like, that's not awesome. Why did it take you three years to discover that your coworker is a Christian? Like, are you that secretive about your faith? But I feel like that's the, the goal. It's like, if we could just maintain a posture where nobody has to know I'm a Christian, you know, it's a private affair anyway, um, and I'm just going to strive to be a better Christian, but is, and I don't want to do anything that offends anyone. Or Listen, the gospel is offensive. We don't have to try to be offensive. Actually, living un, in the spirit of grace is offensive. Loving people without condition is a foreign idea. I was talking with someone recently, and they are like, how do you forgive your dad? I could never forgive my dad. I was actually talking with a non-believer about my book and about forgiveness. And, it was, and the woman I was talking to, it was on a flight, she actually uh, was, had a really tense relationship with her mom and, she, and so she started asking, and, and she's a therapist, she's a counselor. And she's like, I never will forgive my mom for the garbage she put me through. And I was like, well, I'm like… From my vantage point, like the harm that that will do, I mean, you're a therapist. Can you really deny that that probably won't have harm on you psychologically to hold on to that kind of anger and resentment? An unforgiving spirit is foreign to the Christian mind, but non-Christians, like if someone hurts you, you make them pay, you don't forgive them. Like, why would you do that? Don't waste your time on, why would you spend time with a father that never spent time with you? Why would you forgive a man that, abandon you because I have been forgiven, because I know the Jesus that forgave me. What motivates change is not me trying to do something for someone out of my own strength. It's once we've tasted God's grace, how can we not be conduits of that grace and in humility recognize our own brokenness and our desperate need for Him? This is what I believe is being said by, you will know them by their fruit. Is it the fruit uh, of, I believe, the fruit of false teaching? Um, The fruit of the gospel is the fruit of the spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. I don't know if I named all nine, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, That, the fruit of the spirit is what we're looking for in a ministry, is the outcome of this teaching. So for me, when I listen to a teacher, I'm like, does that make me love Jesus more? <laughs> does, that, does that make me trust in His kindness and His graciousness more? Does that actually produce in me a desire to be a conduit of those things in people? Or is what's being said actually making me more judgmental of people around me? Is it making me feel more insecure about my own self? I, I don't trust teaching. that I, I listened to a very well-known teacher for two years when I first became a Christian, and there was an overemphasis on, you might not be saved, you might not be saved, and Lo and behold, I never actually felt like I was saved. And so I prayed to receive Jesus like 200 times just to make sure because I listened to a teacher that always made me feel like I wasn't really saved. Why? Because what he was preaching was law and not grace. And law made me feel not safe with the God that he was presenting. And the fruit was exactly what the tree would produce. And that tree, if there's no grace or gospel driving the language, and if I was to tell you the teacher, is, many of you would be shocked because he is unbelievably well-respected with evangelicalism, but there is an overemphasis on what you do for God and be careful on how you approach God. And all of a sudden, God becomes very dangerous and your performance actually matters a lot. And I don't think that that's a healthy motivator for any kind of life change, and it, and it it breaks my heart because I think it's a misrepresentation of the heart of God and grace and the Bible does not support that kind of vision the false teacher creates false disciples and this is the passage that terrifies people and I'm sorry this has landed on Mother's Day but it's where we're going not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is an incredible passage that tells us something that should make none of us feel that comfortable, which is that it is possible to work for Jesus and not yet live under him. That it's possible to do all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. Now, here's what's fascinating. The, the use of the, of the phrase Lord, Lord speaks of a familiarity. And also, the proclamation that they've done lots of stuff. They've cast out demons. The miraculous has been accomplished to these people. The, they're, they're doing what seem like the legitimate work of the ministry. The, the ministry even seems experiential. Um, They're not just like learners. They actually seem to be people applying what they're learning. And the most terrifying part is that Jesus doesn't deny that they did any of those things. He doesn't say, you never did that for me. He doesn't have anything to say about that. In fact, in fact, I would argue that his silence at what they did for him is him acknowledging that what they're saying is true, but that their foundation was the problem. In other words... You did all of these things for me, but you did not do them out of relationship with me. You know, here is the ultimate kind of arch of, of, of and this is the, the tendency of the human heart. I had a conversation this week, and, and I know this feeling well, which is I can't approach God. I can't come before God or do this or that for God until I get my life together. I gotta g- clean up my act. This is the natural outcome of being under f- bad teaching that puts the pressure upon you. We, we tell people, Jesus loves you as you are, come as you are, uh, come as you are, come in. The offer is free and then we get them into the church and then we tell them, but now you gotta do this. If you're gonna be one of us, if you're gonna be a part of our club, you got you to gotta do this, and this, and this. I was talking with a pastor, a very well-known pastor, of a conservative, kind of what I would call neo, like, um, neo-puritan, kind of very reformed Baptist preacher, and they don't allow people to be baptized unless they go through classes. And their classes are an indoctrination into their particular, their particular denomination. and they, It's like exhaustive. It's like three weeks of classes before you can be baptized. And I was like, I go, I don't understand why you do that. To me, that's like front loading the gospel. I kind of felt like it said, Jesus lifted up, put your faith in him, and be baptized. Like you trust him. What like Peter didn't run a three week class. So I asked a guy in front of a lot of pastors. Peter didn't do a three week class, you know, with everyone on Pentecost. He's like, they're like, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, 3,000 people got baptized. So what are the odds that somebody that got baptized that day wasn't really a believer? What, what's, the, what's the possibility of that? Pretty high. But who cares? That's not my, I'm not responsible for saving people. Nor was Peter. Jesus saves. We're just called to be obedient to that. I'm not going to front load like, well, you got to go with my, And like... And just because someone signs off on a letter of statement of faith there's like okay yeah I'm Baptistic still doesn't guarantee that they know Jesus or that they've been born again because I don't know I'm, I can't I don't have some sort of secret vision into a, what a person with a regenerated heart versus someone who thinks that they have a regenerated heart and they don't that's not the point point. and this point is not to make you feel fearful about the things that you do for Jesus, the real question and what Jesus is pointing out is, is this, is that it's possible to do a lot for a God that you don't know. And at the end of the day, we have to ask our question, do we know him? I actually believe it's the most important question that one can ask. My sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow me. That the goal of the Christian life has never been arriving, it's always been knowing. That it's not about sinning less, it's about loving more. And the question is, is, is the, you can do all these things, but what under, one of the marks of legalism is lovelessness and judgmental. And a, and a love a love that has been poured out in the heart by the spirit is i can't rest until people hear about how good jesus is i want people to know i'm not afraid to enter into the brokenness of lives i'm not afraid to forgive people that have hurt me because i know what i'm capable of i know how much i've been forgiven that's why i say you can't say that you love jesus and refuse to forgive your friend your brother your sister your neighbor your co-worker, you, you don't get to say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't have to forgive them because they've made me mad. That's a sign that your faith is built upon something that you are defining for yourself. You've created your own, your own list of selective sanctification. And don't think that you're okay with Jesus just because you do a bunch of stuff for Him. You know at the end of the day as well as I do what defines us as believers. It's the difference between serving out of, out of a, a deep attempt to um to be acknowledged or to find me how many people serve to find meaning it's like i i desperately need to be loved and i serve because i want to be loved i want to be acknowledged but what about a life that actually recognizes that it is loved and the service flows out of the fact that i am loved in spite of my own brokenness it's a very different foundation It may lead to the same kind of work, but one is a work that comes out of a dependence, a trust in Jesus's ability to work in and through me in spite of me. And the other is is driven by your own strength, your own cleverness in attempting to prove to a God that you don't know and others that you're okay in the world. It's a very subtle line. And it's one that I know is, it can make, make us quite uncomfortable, but here's the thing. I think we have to understand what it means when Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. I think it comes down to this. I, I like what Thomas Merton said in his book, um, uh, Seeds of Contemplation. He said, he said this, he says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self all of us have a false self i love that this idea that there's an illusory person uh, this is the man that i want myself to be but cannot exist because god doesn't know anything about him in other words it's a fantasy self it's the ideal self that we've created of our of uh, in our minds i'm going to be this person but the, the the false self is the self that tries to be the ground of being for himself Instead of God being the ground of being and my, tr- my, my fullness is flowing out of, of faith in him, it is I will be my own God. I will define when I serve this, serve my faith, my people. As long as I'm the one in control, it can be cloaked in Christianity. And the most dangerous kind of Christianity is a Christianity that is still allows you to maintain the wheel when it comes to steering your life. And this is why sin is not the little things you do wrong. It's not swearing or not going to church or not giving or some sexual immorality or anger that leads to murder. Those are the outworkings of the sin nature, which is a rebellion against God's rule. And why the worst kind of sin is sin that is marked by doing the right thing with the wrong foundation. As we're going to consider next week in the close of the Sermon on the Mount, two houses... Both houses look exactly the same. There is no way to tell the difference between the houses. It's, it's the foundation that they're built on that defines how, how good the house is. And that's why it's very difficult to determine this is that you can do the right thing with the wrong foundation and it actually leads to the wrong results, disastrous results. I always say like, how do I know if I'm really following Jesus? Well, go where the pieces. is. That's actually a good place to start. If your Christianity is leading you to more anxiety and despair and not leading to joy and life, if, if your Christianity is leading to actually a distaste for God, maybe the foundation's wrong and you're defining your Christianity based upon what you do rather than what Jesus has done for you. People often say, like, I hate God cause I, and I don't believe in him. I'm like, you don't hate God, you just probably never knew him and that's okay. He still loves you, it doesn't change anything about how he feels toward you, and if you have a hatred toward him, it's just because you, you're misunderstanding him, you believe a lie about him, because he loves you, he's crazy about you. On your worst day, he, he's, he can't stop thinking about you. He is constantly calling, he, t- he says that he desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of him. For most people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than the false self that we often use to define. And, and I think that that shadow self. This is why I would say when Jesus says away from me I never knew you. He's not saying I didn't know you. He's just saying I don't know the you that you chose to be. You decided to write your, your own ticket. I don't know. That's not what I created you for. So I don't have anything to say to that. You have chosen to live an illusion. An illusion, an illusion can't lead to any substance. It never can lead to substance. And so I. I bring to you this, this statement. He says, "Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, now we have to just close and we have to ask the question. Then if false teachers produce false disciples. And both, uh, both the falsehood falls into a wrong foundation. And Jesus is again and again trying to bring us to the end of ourselves so that he can become the foundation by which our lives are built, then we have to ask them, well, what does it mean to do the will of God? What does he mean by that? And I think that this is the question, what kind of work actually saves and what kind of, what, what does it mean to fulfill the will of God? Well, I think we can end right here. Let's consider what the work and the will of God is. John six twenty-eight through 29, Jesus is asked by the crowds, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. It always comes back to faith, friends. We are saved by faith alone through grace alone, not by works so that no one can boast. What does it mean then if he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him and he's saying, he's not saying believe that Jesus, he's not saying believe that I'm real. Everyone knew he was real. He's standing right in front of them. He's saying, Put your trust in me. It's a dependence upon him that gives him the freedom to actually reign and rule through our lives. So surrender or death to the the false self, the shadow self, is essentially just allowing Jesus the right to reign in and through my life. So I always say that faith, I like how Bart defines it, faith is allowing Jesus to be in me, through me, and for me, what I cannot be for myself. It's that he, you're allowing Him to be responsible for you. And you know how hard it is to surrender our will to His? You know how hard, that, that was one of the great tests when I came back from my sabbatical. I was like, am I gonna go forge my own path and leave Door of Hope because ministry's hard? I don't, I don't like the fact that teachers are held to a different accountability level. Uh, Are I going to whine about it? Am I going to play the role of Jonah and keep trying to escape Portland only to find myself vomited back up on its shore over and over again? What I found is I can't escape God and his sovereign rule, but I can be miserable while he's accomplishing what he wants to accomplish through me because I'm trying to go back to Egypt when he's wanting me to enter into the promised land. I know that you can relate to that. And I remember that question that the Lord put on my heart in December. He's like, Josh, I'm going to accomplish what I want to accomplish through you, but your surrender to me uh, is is actually the key to you actually enjoying the journey, or you can fight against me and end bitter. But you escaping your job at Door of Hope and going somewhere else isn't going to help you escape the root problem, which is you have not surrendered your will to me right now. You're trying to take control, and that's a problem. And I remember that, I just like, Lord, just give me joy. and and help me to be faithful with what's in front of me. And I started realizing, all of a sudden, it was just a different lens. I started seeing, like, I get to do everything I love to do at Door of Hope. I want to go somewhere else. It's not like I'm going to get a better house than the house I live in. It's not like I'm going to have, like, who wants to start over with new friends at 50? Like, why would I, like, am I a glutton for punishment? No, and all 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 of a sudden, I started realizing, like, I've been listening to the lies of the enemy because I'm trying to control my own narrative. And instead of allowing Jesus to who invites me into his narrative and to participate in a really meaningful way and the joy that comes with understanding that my belief in him is how he accomplishes his work through me. This is the work of God that you believe in him. the Finally, he says this, whoever for in this day, uh, for... Th- For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. The will of the Father is that everyone who looks to the Son shall have eternal life. And what is eternal life? And it brings us to what is lacking in the false disciples and the false teachers. When Jesus defines eternal life, He defines it this way. And this is eternal life, John 17, 3. That they believe in, or that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The work of God is believing in God. And the will of God is trusting in Jesus in a way that brings us into relationship with him. Eternal life is not something we obtain, it is someone we know. And so at the end of the day, again, I say, do you know him? This isn't a passage that we need to be afraid of. It's actually an invitation to move away from from our feeble attempts to prove to a God that we're worth saving when he's already done everything to save us. Why are we wasting our time on that? It's just come as you are and then be transformed as you abide in him. This is the gift of the gospel. It's not complicated. Come to him like little children is the call of Jesus. False prophets and false disciples live in very complicated webs uh, as they attempt to find meaning out of what they do rather than looking for the meaning that is already available to them and what God has already done for them. And this is the beauty of the gospel. It is an upside down kingdom. Look to Jesus and find He is your salvation. He is your hope. He is your righteousness. He is the gate. He is the path. He is the guide on the path. He's the nourishment while you travel and he is ultimately the goal. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel of grace. We pray on this Mother's Day that we would be reminded of your deep care and concern for us. Lord, that this message is not meant to cause us to run from you in fear but it is meant to cause us to question the lies in which we have believed and the foundations in which we often build our lives that do not bring any kind of real satisfaction. Forgive us for the ways that we try to control our own narratives. Forgive us for the ways that we we miss out on the joy that is found in our lives being surrendered for the good of your gospel and for the good of those around us. Forgive us for working not from a place of peace and confidence that comes out of a right understanding of the Gospel, but for working out of a place of fear and misunderstanding that somehow you're some sort of cruel God who's waiting for us to mess up so you can beat us over the head. That's not your heart toward us, Lord. I pray that every person here would know the freedom that comes from knowing you, from loving you, from walking with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.